peak capitalism, the end of employment as we know it, activism versus extremism. Our addiction to consumerism and materialism, our addiction to bubble wrap? This week's episode, Kerblam, touched on a lot of political concerns of the day. But did it say enough about any of them? Let's dive deep on This Week in Time Travel. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel, episode 76, not that we particularly count them. I'm Chip. I'm Alyssa. And it's Thanksgiving. We about to eat all the food. Uh, you are in California. I am in North Carolina. It's been, you know, it's been a crazy few weeks. It has been. It stopped smelling like smoke at my house, though, so that's great. Congratulations on your lower counts of particulate matter. Obviously, because of holidays, this is another slightly later episode, so we've had the opportunity to see a lot of the reaction to Kerblam, which I'm not going to shout into the microphone this time, more so than we've been for most of this season's episodes. I don't know about you, Alyssa, but this seems to be about the most polarized range of reactions that I've seen all season. What about you? I have to be very honest and say that I looked mostly at headlines and didn't really read articles because it has been a very packed week of family and work events. Um, I have browsed through some conversations. But yeah, it seems pretty polarized depending on sort of what expectations people had of the episode. So, I don't know. Where do you want to start? There, I think there are two kind of separate things that we could talk about in the episode, two big buckets. Uh, you know, the pace, the structure, you know, what kind of a Doctor Who episode it felt like, and then sort of the messaging and how well it sort of thought through things. Where do you want to start? Let's start at the top of the list, just work our way down. Okay. I got to say, from the beginning of the episode and up to close to the end when sort of the messaging and the resolution of the plot sort of made me stop cold for a bit, this is possibly the most fun that I had, at least in the beginning of the episode, that I've had all season. Not to say that any of the episodes preceding it weren't as good or anything like that, but there was just something kind of snappish about this episode. The pace was really good. Um, the story just kept kind of moving, and the humor was really great. I think the the setup part of it, where you're sort of getting introduced to everything, was kind of, it was fun and engaging. You know, it was, it really picked up quick and just launched you straight into the action. Yeah, and we haven't had a lot of those episodes. I mean, Saranga Conundrum and uh, Arachnids in the UK, they were sort of base under siege tension kind of thing. But this reminded me a lot of some of the early RTD episodes that were romps getting from point A to point B really, really fast, sort of action-adventure kinds of stories. And I, and that's something that I don't think we've had a lot of this season is action-adventure. Yeah, I think, you know, we're we're well into the middle of the season now, so they can jump around to a couple of different episode styles. But it also feels like, you know, Team TARDIS is really coming together and beginning to have really good chemistry with each other. You can see the relationships building between them. There's a lot of real good playful banter between all three of them. They have their roles sorted out. They know what they're doing. You know, they're they're getting to be uh, pros at this. They know uh, what 
to expect from each of these adventures. Alien planets are fun and exciting and new, but no longer sort of life-changing to visit them. I know that Graham Burke is unhappy with Joy Piedmont's use of the term on their latest reality bomb, but this does feel like a TARDIS team full of cinnamon rolls, you know, the whole carton, all four of them. Tosin Cole, as Ryan Sinclair, has been doing some really, really clever and funny stuff sort of in the background when other people have the floor. It's not that he's taking attention from anybody, but... In Arachnids, you know, when he was casually making uh, finger puppet shadows in the background. And when my wife Shannon and I were watching this one, and right at the beginning, that opening scene that was actually previewed uh, during Children in Need of uh, Ryan just casually popping the bubble wrap from the Kerblam gift. Those are just so... Those are just so... I don't know. There, there's just something adorable about what Ryan does as a character. As it turns out, popping the bubble wrap turned out to be a plot point. But, you know, there's something about what Tosin does that just sort of enlivens every scene that he's in. I think so. I think Yaz has also been very great. She's sort of the heart of each story. She has been getting a lot of the really emotional, difficult plot lines lately. Um, you know, last week it was her exploring a very painful moment in her family history. And this week, she's the one who's really built sort of the emotional connection with her new co-workers. You know, Ryan's obviously becoming friendly uh, with everyone there, but she's the one that's really devastated to find that her new friend has been pretty brutally murdered and she's the one that really wants to make this right by his family she's the one that wants to go out and return the necklace to the daughter and so you know i think she's doing a lot of really kind of impressive acting there because it's hard to really convincingly be that sort of sad and horrified and angry every episode without it seeming you know kind of over the top but it, it feels emotional and real every single time. Yeah, I think I took her for granted in this episode on my first viewing and was reminded the second time around that solid and competent and sort of fearless, you know, it's almost thankless. She's basically your standard hero, your Ian. Um, I think I've said that before. But you're right. You take a second look and you catch that, you know, she is the first one to say that they need to investigate the help me message she is the one who wants to take the pendant back to dan's daughter in the end you know she is actually the emotional heart of this episode yeah i thought more about i thought more about your statement about ian and i actually kind of now feel more like no she's she's barbara because barbara was rough and ready when she needed to be uh and she was the one that always wanted to uh to really go out and do the responsible thing you know i think i think she's our barbara and what about graham Graham has been getting some interesting moments. I think, you know, he he's being used a lot for comedic relief, which is great. He's still sort of the, the granddad of the group. You know, in uh, this case, he really takes the extremist character under his wing and tries to be a voice of reason to him. You know, I'm still I'm still fine on the character. I'm not particularly enamored, but, you know, he still he has good stuff that he's doing. We did find out this week that the entire TARDIS team will be coming back for the New Year's special. So that's good news. And I I like the chemistry that's been built with all of them. And I hope they continue well into the next season. 
And uh, how about Jodie Whittaker this time around? Always delightful. Okay, moving right. Um, nah. <laughs> do you want anything more from me? I mean, she just is. She's fantastic every single time. You know, it's she's got that great wonder and joy, but she's, you know, really got a good sense of anger in her that comes out really when it's necessary. And she gets to deploy that a couple of great times in this story. Mm-hmm. The whole no second chances thing that the 10th Doctor had back in the beginning, you know, she's got a differently modulated version of that going on but especially in this one i notice you know she in the end she appeals to charlie's empathy to try to get him to abandon his plan and you know she's i almost i, I almost feel like she uses her empathy as a weapon but i don't think that that's fair it's 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 a tool but she is very intentional about that trying to connect and I think this is sort of related to the fact that uh, this season we've had, up until Charlie, most of our villains have been not entirely villains. It's Charlie and our friend from Rosa. Everybody else has been a lot more shades of gray going on. And she appeals to Charlie's empathy and his sense of loss and... She fails, and when she fails, she you know she gives him one last chance to escape his fate, and he refuses. And shrug. Oh well, I tried. Yep. Unfortunately, I don't know how I feel about the actual meat of the plot of this story. You know, the timing is very interesting. My uh, home base of Washington, D.C. Uh, has just been announced as Amazon's new HQ. There's also going to be another HQ in New York because apparently Amazon doesn't quite understand the definition of HQ. And there's a lot of controversy now over the benefits and incentives the company has been given to move into those cities. You know, maybe I'm alone in this one. I watch a lot of what Ryan's talking about. And obviously, there are other retailers out there other than Amazon. Um, But it really feels like they were kind of skirting around the edge of saying that, you know, Ryan, you know, works for like they gave a company name, but it sounds really, you know, that sounds very Amazon. Oh, it's totally. I think it's totally. Yeah. And so it's we're we're in this moment right now where we have a lot of automation. We have a lot of online retailing, um, which requires uh, warehouse jobs like Ryan's to be able to send and deliver goods. And uh, we are more and more hearing about what the conditions are like in those warehouses. And it's a little dystopian. You know, you have even Ryan commenting when everyone's getting their little ankle bracelets put on. Everyone else is horrified. And he's just sort of like, yeah, no, I had this at my last job. You know, it's it's an interesting moment to be able to have this kind of story. And I don't really know that any of its particular criticisms or points landed well with me because like, there's some criticism of everything there, but nothing really lands or sticks. So this is an episode that is intended to be, at the very least, a satire and a sort of an exploration of big commerce and also the end of work. You know, there was a patch in the 80s when the boogeyman was uh, automated car manufacturing and the assembly li- robots on the assembly lines um, in Detroit. And we're going through another phase of that right now, and it feels even more serious to this old-timer, where people are actually concerned about 
broadly speaking, the end of work as automation becomes much more cost effective. And that's part of the setting of this episode is a world where robots can do all of the work and, quote, organics, close quote, are trying to find a place for themselves. So there's a reason to do a Doctor Who story about this. And, you know, here in the U.S. with the Amazon HQ stuff, you know, there's been a lot more scrutiny and social criticism of Amazon for its work practices and stuff like that. So this episode coming out when it did, I was expecting, I was expecting a harder edge. Maybe not to have politics spelled out for me necessarily, but I was really hoping that it was going to engage with what was going on. And in the last 10 minutes, it's more like throwing up its hands and saying, everything's bad. This is the world we live in. We'll just make the best of it and move on. You know, I felt like it's it isn't even so much that that's that. I mean, that is, that is kind of it. I think it's politics were very confused um, because it's not really engaging with what that world looks like where so many people can't get jobs. Like what is – they weren't really explaining what the alternative is for people who do not have jobs. You know, is it you don't have jobs but you're provided with some sort of universal basic income but people just feel sort of directionless and without purpose because they're not doing like – manual labor jobs? Is it that you need jobs to be able to have money for housing and food and life, but it's not available to any of those except, you know, the highest people or people who get lucky in a lottery system and get jobs with a company like Kerblam? I couldn't really see what what was going on in the world that motivated people to want to get a job at Kerblam because people were talking about it as if it was like something to give them purpose rather than is this necessary to function and you just have to be exceptionally lucky to be able to get a job, to be able to afford to have a life um, right. in this world. I feel like that wasn't very clear, which then ultimately came to a, down to a very weird question of – why is it that these are jobs worth preserving? Because Ryan even says, you know, jobs gives you purpose, but not all jobs. You know, he's pointing out he's basically an automaton in this line. It's not fulfilling, interesting, engaging work. You are just basically doing work that a machine could absolutely do. How does it give this purpose? How does it, you know, fulfill something you want to do in life? So what what is it that we are are trying to save? Like just the idea that work is good and you should have something that you are doing in your life or does, you know, a small conglomerate own Kerblam and all of the wealth and they are, you know, metering out small jobs for people to be able to earn something while the vast majority of people are starving on the edges of society because they will not be given either a universal basic income or a job to survive. The doctor has that line about systems aren't bad. It's what you do with the systems. But I don't know what the system is. I don't know what we're saving. I don't know what we're fighting for. And I don't know whether we should be mad about automation or fundamentally more mad about the rest of society because it hasn't figured out what to do when 
everything is automated, like, what are you going to do with all the wealth that is generated? Yeah. And, you know, that was one line that really failed the smell test for me was systems aren't bad. It's what people do with them, you know. Sorry, uh, slavery was a system. That was a bad system. I'm just saying. I am reminded of the classic Star Trek story, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which has Frank Gorshin and somebody else whose name I forget playing representatives of an alien race that have black skin on one half of their bodies and white skin on the other half of their bodies. And it is very, very important to this society's uh, class and race structure, which side is black and which side is white. So it's 1969, very, very clumsy racism metaphor. And the comments that everybody on the uh, USS Enterprise make uh, in that story about this system and the, 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 the inhabitants of this planet and the social struggle that they go through. You've got one government official versus one activist and revolutionary. And the USS Enterprise crew think both of them are primitive and are dismissive of them. And I'm like, no, this is awful. I got that same sense at the end of this episode, that the episode was kind of saying that, yeah, this is bad, but the kind of resistance is bad. Everything's just bad, so let's just accept the status quo and have an adventure in this status quo. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think the fact that it failed to build out the larger world made it harder to see who was really sort of a true villain here. Because it feels like it was trying to go for a morally gray story or like it was trying to go for a flip of actually, no, this automated system has a conscious and it's trying to help. And so therefore, you know, sci-fi isn't going for the easy thing that, you know, automated AI systems are bad. It's actually the good guy here. And it just feels kind of awkward, not super great storytelling because I don't get a sense of what people are fighting for. I don't get a sense of what the values are. I don't see where the stakes lie in this. And it feels like, I don't know, it feels like the extremists plot doesn't hold up very well. No, um, no. I yeah. mean, at the end, uh, in, during the confrontation, the doctor tells Charlie, this isn't a cause. You're not an activist. This is cold-blooded murder. And then she says that people like him are the problem, not any system. And that's one hell of a leap. I think it's just I don't get how this is supposed to do anything like I don't get so he's going to kill a bunch of people. Uh, so that's supposed to, you know, prove that automated AI systems are bad and start a revolution. But like, is that actually going to fundamentally change anything? Are we talking about moving people back into automaton jobs just so everyone has a job? Are we talking about basic survival? And in that case, shouldn't we be talking about like, who is owning this company? Who's generating the wealth? Where is it going to? How can people even afford to buy things at Kerblam and like have a galaxy wide Amazon equivalent? Like none of none of it makes sense to me, really. No. Like it's fun on a first view, and then I stopped to think about it and went, "Wait a minute, what the heck did just happened here?" Exactly, exactly. I mean, his plan only goes so far as to try to discredit Kerblam among its customers. So the company's going to go bankrupt afterward. Uh, yeah, I just 
I don't mind politically murky stories. I don't mind it when there are no good guys and bad guys per se, or that everybody in the story is compromised or something like that, as long as the story actually engages it. There's a load of stuff that you can sort of read into the story after the fact, but this story shied away from making any kinds of statements. And I'm not asking for the story to tell me every week what good politics is and what bad politics is. I have my own opinions of that, but I don't think this story had a point of view. I think it had a lot of point of views, and I just don't think, you know, it, it feels like there was a story first and foremost that somebody had. You know, delivery system, something's evil gone wrong, and in a beautiful Doctor Who trick, the bubble wrap is actually dangerous for the first time, you know? like <laughs> That's practically make- Moffat. It's the, it's the casual thing there, you know? Exactly. So that's, you know, I feel like that was the core of it. And like, that can be a good fun story. And then it feels like there were political lines pasted on because, you know, of course, we're all active in this current system that we have on Earth. And we do want to make points about what is happening here in our own world. And viewed on their own, there's a lot of lines here that I think are kind of good and interesting. I don't think all automation is bad, but I have some concerns about its application, which is sort of like systems aren't bad, but it's about how you use them. Like, that's not great, but it's like it's almost there. Ryan's line about, like, is this really a job worth saving? That's kind of good. So, like, there are lines in it. But as a cohesive whole, I feel like it needed, like, one or two more rounds of edits to hone that political story. Um, because it feels like someone had a really good Doctor Who story and a really good action-adventure story. And then they started making a few points to criticize our current world. But it just needed another round to bring it all together. Like, it feels like a lot of kind of unconnected threads at the moment. A lot of fun in the watching up until you get to the end of it and you're like, what just happened here is is sort of my summation. I wish that it had done more with the issues that it raised. This week on The Incomparable Network. Apparently, you can draft anything on The Incomparable. This week, the panel drafted a full Thanksgiving dinner and almost came to blows over the merits of jellied cranberry sauce out of a can. That's The Incomparable 433... You like garbage. Deb and Erica crossed over with Stephen and Rachel from Hockey Fields for a hockey road trip through Alberta in Beginner's Puck 31. And Jason Snell and James Thompson reviewed Kerblam on the Doctor Who Flashcast. Spoiler, they really didn't like it. That's TV episode 497. All this and more at theincomparable.com. Alyssa, belated thought that just occurred to me before we uh, head out for the week. If you would like to take a deeper look into some of the issues with Amazon and commercialism and big, massive corporations that automate and are your sole source for everything under the sun, I've really started liking Hassan Minaj's new uh, comedy show on Netflix. He calls it a woke TED Talk called Patriot Act. Look it up on Netflix, and his third episode is on Amazon. And if you wished that this episode got into it deeper, you might be interested in that one. I'll check it out. 
Thanks for listening to This Week in Time Travel for the Week. We will be back on closer to our regular schedule next time for The Witchfinders. You can find more of our episodes at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at drwhothisweek. Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism, and I am on Twitter at Numeral Two Minute Time Lord, and we're on Facebook as well. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music and to David J. Lore for our original podcast artwork. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network, and if you really like us, tell all your friends about us. You really, really like us. Trust us, you do. We'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. 